Inverse Genius Episode 17, Wheel to Wheel. In this episode, Eric is joined by Darth Binkley himself, Jonathan Bishop, and by Donald Dennis to talk about all that is awesome about Formula One racing. Inverse Genius is sponsored by the amazing Patreons at patreon.com slash obg. Thank you incredibly much for your support. Hey, be sure to watch the race this weekend. Hello and welcome to another episode of Inverse Genius. I am Eric Dewey, your host, and today I'm really excited because we have a topic that I've been trying to get onto the recorder for quite a while, and to deal with this particular topic, I needed to bring in an expert on that topic. So, without further ado, I want to introduce the one and only Darth Binkley himself, Jonathan Bishop. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is definitely a topic... uh we realized uh, quite a while back that we both have a passion for, and I'm glad to get together to talk to you about it, with you about it. Me too. Excellent. Me too. And we also need to have what we would call the everyman voice in this particular conversation, and so who better than Mr. Donald Dennis? So if if you're saying that the everyman is the completely ignorant man, then that is me. That's fine. Ignorance (laughs) is not not a bad thing. Right. Well, yeah, so hopefully I'll be able to ask all the questions that need asking for those who are interested but not informed, because that's me, interested and yet not informed. Fantastic. Well, we've kind of dallied around the topic, but what is, Mr. Mister Bishop, what is our topic du jour? Our topic today is just discussing uh, the wonderful world of Formula One racing. Absolutely. So... I have been a fan of Formula One racing for about 15, almost 16 years. Um, I've told the story many times, but the basic gist of it was when my daughter was born, I had to feed her on Sunday mornings while my wife got ready for church. And so I just wanted to put something on the TV that I could not have to worry about focusing on because we didn't have much sleep. And since a lot of the races were in Europe, right about that time when I was feeding her, Formula One races were on, so I watched that. And by the time she had been weaned off the bottle, I had been weaned on to uh, the joy of Formula One racing. So So, while you were giving your daughter formula, you got hooked on Formula One. Actually, well put. (laughs) (laughs) I see what you did there. Nicely done. How about you, Jonathan? Well, actually, so I had been um, watching Formula One about three years before my daughter was born. But um, the same uh, morning feeding routine was kind of what solidified it in my mind, or in my uh, heart, I guess I should say. Um, I originally started watching it because of um, when I was in my first assignment in the Air Force, there was a German down the street. He and I started watching IndyCar together, which was my first interest. And then he started talking more about Formula One. I started watching it. Um, and then when my daughter came along, like we we're saying, it's if if the wife knees you in the at five a.m. in the morning and says it's your turn to feed the baby, you look for something that's on the TV, and Formula One's often there. And uh, so it's just something that that stuck, and I've been a fan ever since. Fantastic. Now, what's the difference between like IndyCar, NASCAR, and Formula One? Oh, glad you asked that question. <laughs> Before we dive into that, though, uh, one of the reasons that we definitely wanted to get this episode done right now is because this very weekend is going to be the U.S. Grand Prix down in Austin. 
uh, at the Circuit of America. And so if you happen to be listening to this episode, uh, this coming Sunday is going to be the race. So check out NBC or NBC Sports. I don't remember which channel it's on, but one of the NBC shows. And you can actually watch Formula One in all its glory. I'm pretty sure this one's probably going to be on big NBC, and then they'll show it later in the day on NBC Sports. Yep, I think you're right. And then uh, in case you get completely hooked, next season it's going to be on ESPN. Is that right? Uh, Yes, it is. And I think there's a lot of question marks over that one um, because I'm hearing things like um, ESPN um, isn't actually going to have their own announcer crew. They're just going to use the the fallback world feed announcing crew. And so this attention that NBC Sports has been putting into it and nurturing it as a, as a niche sport, but one that has an enthusiastic following, looks like it could end up wilting, um, although I certainly hope not. Yeah, that's too bad, because the, the announcers that have been on, uh, the, first they're on Speed, and then they're on uh, NBC Sports, Lee Diffie and uh, Steve Matchett and... Uh, David Hobbs. David Hobbs. David Hobbs. Thank you. <laughs> um, they, have a great, they have a great rapport. And it, they're always full of information. It's always funny to listen to them speculate on what's going on in the race. And nine times out of ten, none of that ever comes true. But Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about what, what makes a Formula One race. And to answer Don's question, what's the difference between it and IndyCar and NASCAR? Um, so first off, uh, Formula One, of course, is an open-wheel race. And what that basically means is that there is nothing covering the wheels. So if you look at NASCAR or if you look at... Uh, the sport cut series or any of the rally car series, those kinds of things, there's always like full bodies over the car. But in the open wheel ones like Indy and Formula One, the, the wheels themselves are open. The whole car design is is basically we want to make something as aerodynamic as possible. Yeah, and um, I guess um, – and that comes and goes, in, I think, in uh, rules as the years go on because we tend to have waves – where the aerodynamicists tweak their cars to the nth degree, and then typically the race gets boring, and so they'll do things like shaking up the rules and changing it and changing the box, and then you may see a a new team uh, come to uh, the front. But I guess one of the big differences, even though they look kind of the same superficially, um, Indy cars are basically all the same right now. It hasn't always been that way. In the 60s and 70s, uh, there was a great deal of innovation, but for the last 20 years or so, Indy cars have basically all been the same. Um, which makes the racing good, but basically everybody has uh, nearly equal equipment. Whereas with Formula One, each team has to build their own cars, and um, they can buy, you know, they can buy their transmission, they can buy their engines from other companies, um, and and all of them, most of them do buy their engines from a bigger company. But each of them, essentially, when it comes down to it, has to build at least all their own bodywork. So, and does, so the does cars, that mean that? That yeah, I can put ahead. an atomic reactor in my car and you're running gas, or what does that mean? So there's very specific rules on how what your engine can be like and how it works, and and one of the one of the things you'll hear us say over and over again is the rules change constantly. Every season there's a new rule, and uh, was it two or three years back they changed to where they wanted to be more hybrid now. Um, which was a huge deal yeah. simply because the, the tone of the engines changed dramatically. And you wouldn't think that was a big deal, but listening to the races, it took me forever to get used to these different sounding motors. Yeah, one of the things that certainly set it apart back in the 90s and 2000s was the whale of the uh, – actually, at the time, they were using normally aspirated V10s uh, to get a little bit of a 
gearhead thing with non-turbocharged V10s, and then they've moved uh, gradually down to V8s, and now they're uh, yeah turbocharged V6s, and which are a lot quieter. But yet, um, those aerodynamicists and engineers have have gotten them so that even the engines are a lot that are a lot smaller. We're starting to see. Um, all-time track records start to be shattered again, which is something that... Yeah, uh, I thought more Vs was better. Well, it is and it <laughs> isn't. I mean, in general, it is more... There's no replacement for displacement, is the saying. Um, but on the other hand, there's a whole lot of tweaks you can make, and when everybody is limited to a V6 or a V8, then you just have to kind of go... Basically, if you're a rules lawyer there is a job for you in Formula One because you're going to look <laughs> at these rules and you're going to say, what? how can I get right up to the edge and not go over them? <laughs> yeah. Uh, aerodynamics. And what's what's always, always interesting is when some team comes out, and this happened to Red Bull when they were dominant, some team comes out because they have some sort of thing that they've done, you know, airflow distribution or something they've done their car is totally dominant and either all the other cars will do it or the fia the ruling body of formula one will suddenly say nope that's illegal you got to change it (laughs) but they but can they do that before the race or how much notice do they have that something is going to be illegal Uh, it depends on how vindictive they feel usually you'll have a couple of races before you have to make that change but every so often if they feel you've you know, broken the rules intentionally, they can go in and say, nope, sorry, this has got to go. And to be cynical, sometimes it depends on which side of that dispute Ferrari is on, how how quickly it gets resolved. That is true. So does that mean that they hate Ferrari or they love Ferrari? It depends. (laughs) (laughs) Ferrari is, Ferrari has been there since the beginning of organized Formula One. Um, They are one of the teams they are, I mean, they make road cars, but they, they build everything themselves. They don't have the backing of a Mercedes or a Renault or something like that. And, and they've been there since the beginning. So they tend to some, – some teams are more equal than others when it comes to the voting. Yeah. And what's interesting about Ferrari is that the majority of their income comes from not car sales. A lot of it is just Ferrari merchandise and – you know, they, I, I believe they're building a theme park or they have some giant, you know, custom thing in Italy. I mean, Ferrari in Italy and in, in Europe in general, but Italy specifically is a huge, huge deal. And yeah, sometimes, sometimes like when Michael Schumacher was winning every race uh, for Ferrari, uh, after the couple of seasons of that, they changed the scoring so that it was easier to sort of catch up Um and try and make things more interesting. So there is a, a little bit of that kind of modifications to the rules. Yeah. In other words, you really can't judge one season versus like five years ago because everything is changing up, down, left, right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Jonathan used the phrase organized Formula One, right? Uh, and so what, what exactly does the organization look like? And, and I understand there's these teams. It's not, not necessarily a solo sport or, or am I completely... Uh, completely thinking about the wrong racetrack. No, no, every team will have two drivers. A lot of teams have sort of farm teams or sub, I shouldn't say farm teams, but sub teams. So like, for instance, there's Red Bull, who's one of the top top teams. And then they have another team called Toro Rosso, which is Red Bull. Um, and they're, they're going to be a middle of the road, middle of the pack 
uh, team as well. But they kind of use that as a feeder into their their main drivers. And, and that's one of the things that I find just amazing about Formula One. You know, uh, Jonathan was talking about Indy, and all the cars are basically the same. Formula One, at least half the cars never have a chance to win unless there's rain or some other bizarre thing. I mean, they're just out there trying to score, you know, 10th or higher. And, um, you know, part of you kind of wonders, well, what's the point of trying? But, you know, the drivers are hoping to maybe move up to better teams. Well, and the teams themselves are just hoping to make money. And, and you know, you never know. A middle-of-the-pack team can become a front-of-the-road team just based on luck or skill of design. But it's always really interesting that, that there are people who have no hope of ever winning any races. <laughs> so that second team is not there to just ram someone else off the road. They're there for... For, for scoring points or for uh, you know uh, giving giving positional advantage, but you're not expecting them to win. Although there was one exception about not <laughs> ramming people off the road. <laughs> yeah, um, which one are we talking about? The uh, incident between the uh, Force Indias or yes, no, no, no. The, uh, it was about oh, three okay. or four years ago where the team ordered a car to crash into another. Oh yes, yeah, the the Benetton or but, the Renault yeah. thing when Flavio Briatore ordered uh, Nelson Piquet to yeah. cause a safety car which actually happened to let Fernando Alonso uh through to win because that is exactly when he needed a safety car to happen uh, to win on his strategy and that was very underhanded and so Mr. Briatore hasn't been back since. Um, <laughs> it goes without saying. Um, but there's a lot of dollars involved, so it's yeah. not a surprise something like that happens. Yeah, um, getting I guess one of the, just an interesting story. My first favorite team in Formula One was Jordan, um, who consistently placed third, I guess, in the in the late '90s Jordan Grand Prix. Uh, but they won several races in the in the first year that I really started paying attention, and that was because the two dominant teams at the time, uh, McLaren and Ferrari, both had double retirements several times that year. And the Jordan would come through, or they'd or they'd luck into it on the in the rain and come through, and just that. Well, there's a five percent chance my team might win today, um, so I'm pulling for them. Kind of thing was was part of what cemented it too. What is yeah. double retirement? Uh, it, that that's when both both cars from the same team have an engine failure, um, or uh, crash, or in, in in rare instances crash into each other which we've seen a couple <laughs> times in the last couple of years which is oh, yeah. uh the one of the first rules i guess the first rule in of uh formula one is you have to beat your teammate and the second rule in formula one is probably you you must never crash your teammate yes um, and <laughs> so uh basically yeah <laughs> so it's not beat the other people it's just beat the people on your team and a lot of the time it's just beat your teammate because if especially if you're in one of these lower back of the grid teams if you beat your teammate 14 out of the 16 races or whatever like that um you're going to be looked at a lot more closely to step up to a middle of the pack team um yep and, and, the, and the money is just tremendous you get one points position one points result the whole year, which is finishing in the top ten out of out of twenty two cars once in the whole year, uh, makes an immense amount of difference. Multiple tens of millions of dollars to how much that how much money that team gets the next year. Yes, and, and the drivers themselves, when you start hitting that top tier, you are. I mean, if you look at the you know Forbes or whoever lists the top twenty five paid athletes for the year, you're going to see two or three Formula One guys up there. You'll see Lewis Hamilton. You'll see. Fernando Alonso, you'll see Sebastian Vettel because they get paid an insane amount of money because there is a lot of money riding on Formula One. And if things go wrong, they have a chance to go wrong catastrophically. Um, 
definitely you can definitely see some amazing accidents. Now, um, you know, if you look at like NASCAR, where they're always kind of right racing in big packs, you know, if one car loses it, it's going to knock out a bunch of other cars. So those are kind of impressive. With Formula One, it's usually one or two cars, sometimes three, kind of interacting with one another. But these cars will go flying. I've seen. I've seen uh, cars leap over other cars, rotating, you know, corkscrewing in the air and landing and crashing. And oh man, carbon fiber bits everywhere. Um, there's no trading paint in Formula One, by the way. The cars are so insanely light and fragile that if you bump somebody, um, you're going to rip pieces of your car off. And in theory, your car will perform worse. Although many times it seems to perform better. It seems like sometimes it does. Yeah. So um, you were talking about losing pieces of your car and, and performing better. I understand that at the end of the game, or I'm sorry, at the end of the main, at the end, at the end of the race, that uh, how much gas you burned is an issue and how much weight you've lost or gained over the course of a track is a big deal. So if you lose, you know, a piece off your car, that could cost you the race, right? Or am, eh, am I imagining it things? The, it has the potential to. So first things first, as of, I don't remember, 10 years ago, five years ago, there's no refueling in Formula One. So you have to have enough gas in your car or whatever it is to uh, make it the entire race. And, of course, that fuel weighs quite a bit. And so at the end of the race, every car has to be weighed. And if it's found to be too light, you're disqualified. So what's always funny is you're as the cars are racing around the track, their tires are getting chewed up and spitting out and there's a, what David Hobbs always likes to refer to as clag, which is all these little bits of rubber that have come off the car, and they're on sort of the sides of the track. And at the end of the race, everyone takes a, an additional lap to kind of cool down. Well, they're always driving their cars over all of that to pick up as much of that rubber as possible, just to keep sure they have a little bit of a, a buffer on that minimum weight. And, and how many people get disqualified for, for weight? It honestly doesn't happen that often. Yeah, I, I, I can't don't know. recall one happening yeah. in the last five years. Maybe there has been, but okay. So how do you win? It first person across the line. Then what's what's the deal here? Yep. So there's yeah. really yep. First person across the line. The only real rule they have is that you must change tires at least once. So they, they come to the racetrack with three different tire compounds. There'll be softer ones and harder ones. The harder ones last longer, but in theory have less grip. The softer ones have more grip, but go away faster. So at what po at one point in the race, you have to pit and change to a different type of tire. Other than that, you're free to go and do whatever you want. If it happens to rain and you there's intermediate and wet tires, so if you if it rains and any of those tires go on, then the rule for having to change tires is thrown out the window because they don't want to make people wear you know, racing slicks when there's rain on the on the track. And these pit stops, I think, are one of the more um, mind-boggling things when you first see them if you're new to the sport. Because if you, um, some of our listeners may know, be familiar with a NASCAR pit stop. You know, it takes they do they still use two gas cans, and they're using one jack for each side, and so you know it can take 15 or 20 seconds. An IndyCar pit stop can take um, seven, eight, ten seconds sometimes to because the tanks are gravity filled. But since they're not refueling in Formula One. And all they're doing is changing tires. And there's no limit over of to how many people can be servicing the car during the pit stop. What you end up seeing is the car will come in. There's 20-something people around it. And uh, the old tires, it gets jacked up. The old tires go off. The new tires go on. And it's on its way again, uh, sometimes in under two seconds. 
Yes, it is amazing. Like two and a half seconds is your average. Two and a half to three seconds is your average Formula One pit stop. And you know, there's one guy whose job is to take a tire off. There's another guy whose job is to put a tire on. You know, I mean, everyone has this, this specific job, and they practice it down to the T. And it makes a huge difference because if I've seen more than one race lost because one guy took three seconds in the pit and the guy behind him only took two and a half, and that half second was all he needed was to jump in front of him. What's the penalty for letting a tire get away from you and hitting somebody else's car? Oh, you can get disqualified for that. Yeah, you're at least going to get a lengthy pit stop on that. But yeah, you you could very well get disqualified for that. Yeah, and they can make you have a drive-through penalty, which means you have to drive through the pit lane. Once you hit the pit lane, there's a max speed. I think it's like 50 miles an hour. Um, and you can't speed over that. And so they can make you go through that, which will slow down your entire lap. They can do stop-and-go penalties where you have to sit in your pit box for 5 or 10 seconds and then you can go. Um, but they take those kinds of things, errant tires or any kind of unsafe release, they take really seriously. They can also do something that's kind of odd that takes a little bit of getting used to, which they can decide they're just going to investigate something after the race. And then sometimes even half an hour or an hour after the race, they could decide that somebody's going to be given a 10-second penalty. And so even though they, uh, the fans at the track saw them um, cross the line before another car, they may end up getting penalized and, and get classified in the end as being behind them. Yeah, there's been... So the podium is first, second, and third. So if you come in first, second, third, you get to go with the, the fancy podium and get to be interviewed by somebody and th- spray champagne all over the place. And I've seen races... Actually, it was just this season, I believe, where somebody was a third place, and then later on they investigated, oh, sorry, you got five-second penalty, now you're fourth place, so... You know, you didn't really get on the podium after all. I guess they have to get the trophy back. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Uh, So, but when you're starting the race, you 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 have to qualify for pole position or something, right? Yep, yep, yep. So there's qualification. So you race around um, trying to get the fastest laps, and there's I think there's three. Yeah, there's uh, three qualification sessions. Yep. And so ultimately, whoever is the fastest after all three of those, like the, at the end of the third, quali- the first one, then they, anyone who didn't make it fast enough is, okay, you're in the back, and then the next group gets to go, the second qualification, all right, those guys, you know, you've been cut off the next, I forget how many there is. Um, and then yeah, the last it varies group. by each session, but you end up, yeah. what you really end up with is most of the excitement in the first uh, two sessions is who's right on the bubble and who's barely going to make it and who's not. Uh, versus who's going to be the absolute fastest because the teams that know they're going to go through just need to put down a good time but they don't necessarily have to put down the best time they just have to be in the top 15 or top 10 um yeah is, is there a bonus or penalty on your time based on where you are in pole position at the end or is it just placement uh, location is everything you basically are running on the track yourself i mean there's other cars there but they're staggered and so it's just really who, you know, what kind of time you can do. If you can do a whole lap in a minute and 48 seconds and then someone else does it in a minute and 47, then they're going to be ahead of you. Well, okay. I don't know if I, if I expressed this right. Uh, but so if I'm half a second behind you at start, the that means that I basically have a half a second penalty throughout the entire race, right? Or is it really my personal lap time? Oh, at the start, yeah, absolutely. If you're behind somebody, uh, you've got to make that up in some way. And and what's real fun is actually the start, the first corner of every every race is always just amazing because you've got all these cars racing as fast as they can. Their tires are relatively cold, and now you've got to navigate a turn, and nobody wants to give up any position because, in all honesty, 
passing people in Formula One is pretty difficult. And that's one of the knocks against Formula One is that you don't see a lot of action. It's just a lot of, like, almost a parade. So you don't want to give up anything if you can avoid it. And so the guy on pole position has got a distinct advantage, right? He's going to be, there's no one in front of him, and he's going to take off. And so guys in two, three, and four, uh, so two is next to pole position, three and four are behind him. I mean, they're just got to hope that they launch faster than the car in front of them and can whip around them and and that happens quite a bit because the the start there's no uh, launch control or any kind of technology that enables you a bonus on a start you've just got to hit the gas at the right time find the bite part on your clutch and just hope that you take off before somebody else does i guess maybe we want to maybe take a step back there eric and explain that um i mean nascar and indycar both use rolling starts but in formula one you have a standing start so the, the cars will, will go at fairly slow speed around the course, uh, one lap, trying to warm up their tires as best they can. Uh, then they'll all each stop in their own little uh, grid position on the front straight, um, wait for some lights to come on, and then go off, kind of like you see in a video game. Uh, the video games with the, with the lights that give you a start like that are basically inspired by Formula One. So it's a little bit different than, than what you'd see in IndyCar or NASCAR with the rolling start. And I'd like to apologize to the listeners who already know this stuff, uh, but for those of us who don't, it, it is new information. Absolutely. And one of the other things that I really love about Formula One, of course, is are the tracks. The tracks themselves are usually full of history or really amazingly designed. And, you know, the big joke, of course, in NASCAR is that you only turn left, and in Formula One, you turn left and right. Um, and so... Each track has its own feel. I mean, if you go to, if you watch the, the Monza race, for instance, in Italy, I mean, that is a fast, fast track. And so the cars are going to be racing around. Whereas if you watch Monaco, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a slower track and uh, there's less room for passing. So there's a lot of different strategy depending on just where you go. And some of these tracks are, are just completely amazing. I love the Circuit of America track, actually. It's got this huge hill that goes up. Uh, right at the start of the tra- track, and then the first turn is at the top of the hill. So there's always a lot of interesting racing and jockeying for position as you hit that apex on the turn. And is it all on tracks or is it on roads? Because you know, I remember watching you know various and sundry movies where sometimes it looks like these uh, races are occurring like in a city instead of in a on a racetrack. So I guess for the longest time, uh, Monaco, the Grand Prix of, Mon- of Monte Carlo, was the only one that was on city streets in Formula One, and it's still definitely the oldest. So um, when Eric is talking about how narrow it is, that's basically because you're racing around this city that's built on hills amongst uh, luxury hotels and things. And so that's quite a side in and of itself. But then I guess in the last couple years with uh, Singapore, and there's actually one in Azerbaijan now, <laughs> um, and and they're they're starting to bring in more street uh, races than than we had five years ago when it was really only Singapore and and uh, Monaco I guess most of the ones in in Europe anyway are were on are on permanent road courses that typically were built back in the fifties or sixties and have a lot of history I guess um, we talked a little bit about the U.S. Grand Prix and how spectacular Circuit of the Americas is um, in the in the this kind of gets to something that maybe we want to touch on a little bit, which is the history of Formula One in the U.S., since it's perceived primarily as a European sport. But I guess on that note, kind of notoriously, there was one U.S. Grand Prix that was actually in Dallas on city streets and uh, a couple around a parking lot at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. 
and then back in the '60s, actually, the Long Beach Grand Prix was 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 part of Formula One, and now it's part of IndyCar. Uh, so there's yeah. certainly a little bit of a history of racing in the city streets in Formula One. True, and they uh, for quite a while they raced in the uh, Indy 500 circuit. There was a they used part of the oval, and then in the inside they raced on the inside track as well. Yeah, I, got, I actually I have fortunately been to two of those that were held at Indy, and they were both they're both great experiences. And that was interesting because just because of the history of the circuit, but yet seeing it in a completely different light, with the cars going the other way. Uh, oh, with yeah. <laughs> with with the second time I went, it actually rained, and you know, rain is anathema to IndyCar racing. You know, there's a droplet, and you'll have a yellow flag, and if it if it rains more than a couple sprinkles, they stop the race. But here, there's a pretty good downpour, and the cars are just tearing down the front straight with these huge rooster tails behind them, and that was yeah. certainly certainly something very interesting to see. <laughs> I definitely want to talk about rain, but we can't talk about Indy. Uh, racing without that one infamous race in uh, in the mid 2000s, where it, for a while there were it used to be there were two different tire manufacturers, Bridgestone and oh Michigan. gosh, yes. And so half the teams, or more than half the teams, picked one tire, and then, and then a handful Ferrari and some of the low tier teams picked the other tire. Well, for whatever reason, the tire that one of the teams brought, the one that the majority of racers had, just wasn't up to snuff. And they was really actually just not even deemed safe. And so normally you have 20 cars on the grid, 20 plus cars on the grid. Well, all those racers, and I want to say it was Michelin, all the racers racing the Michelin tires. Yeah, it was the Michelins that pulled in. Yeah, just said, we can't race. So they didn't race at all. So it was Ferrari and then two or three, I think it was two backmarker teams, Minardi and somebody else. Yeah, there there were six cars driving around for two hours. And that was was probably the nail in the coffin of having the u.s grand prix at indy but yeah wow that 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 cost some tire manufacturer yes um, a significant amount of business if nothing else i'm sure yeah absolutely and it, and it really it really tanked the reputation of formula one um just for at, at america because it was that might have been the last year of indy there may have been one after that i think there was one after it. that but yeah, yeah it had not a good crowd after that uh for the for, it was kind of interesting for the part of what also I think made Indy not work out was just that the ticket prices were reasonable, um, where in a lot of places they're not. And I remember the, the first time we went, which is the first time I was at Indy, there were people that were coming over from Europe because it was cheaper for them to come over uh, tour the U.S. and go to the U.S. Grand Prix than it would have been for them to go to the next country over and watch the Grand Prix or go watch their home Grand Prix. Wow. There is... And I talk about there's a lot of money to be made in Formula One, but a lot of it is made by the the you know FIA or the the owners of Formula One. Uh, the the relation the costs for the host city or the host track are pretty pretty Im- immense, and that's why we've seen a lot of older tracks that have been used forever going away, and these newer ones like in Azerbaijan or Abu Dhabi or or I'm sorry Dubai. Um, where you know the government's more than happy to throw money at it, kind of come in and and start to become more of the normal tracks that you see. So you're talking about rain not too long ago. Um, I thought that with the the F1 style of car, that all of your handling really came from uh, you know the surfaces on the the downforce, right? Because mm-hmm. you, you hear about downforce. So if you've got 
to go slower because of rain or even not slower because of rain, but that's going to cause other issues. Um, that, that's got to be crippling for your handling or am I imagining things? It, it is. And, um, you know, depending on the particular rule set, sometimes people look at the weather forecast and try to try to game that in qualifying. From what I gather recently, everybody always goes as low downforce as they can in qualifying and just sucks it up in the race with the assumption that everybody else is in the same boat. Yeah. So there's really two ways that the cars stick to the track. Now, recognize that, I mean, these cars are flying 160, 180, 190 miles an hour, and then all of a sudden they need to slow down to, uh, you know, 40, 50, 60 miles an hour to take a sharp turn. So when they have to take that turn, there's all this airflow pushing the car down, and then there's the tires themselves that are gripping that road. And so when you add rain to that, uh, it, it suddenly changes everything. And I always I always enjoy it when there's rain because you never, ever know what's going to happen in the race. Um, everything is just thrown out the window when it rains. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, both when it – predicting when it's going to rain and how fast it's going to dry up is uh, – there's always drama and fun on either end of the, of the rainstorm um, in terms of knowing when to switch back to your slick tires because there's just enough of the track that's dry enough that you're going to – like you were saying, Donald, um, you're you're definitely sacrificing a lot to be driving in the rain, and so the minute there's a single dry groove down the track, somebody's going to try to go back on those dry tires, and they're either going to make up, you know, six eight positions within a couple laps, or they're going to be in the gravel and and uh, out of the race. But the, you were talking about rooster tails. The the thing about Formula One is it's got to be really really raining for them to halt the race. Um, and if it's just raining somewhat then they don't care. And remember, there's no fenders on these cars. There's no windshield wipers. It's just nothing but, but 10, 15 feet of, of spray. So if you're not in the front, oh, my gosh, oh, I don't know yeah, how they can do it. I don't know it. how they can see anything. But they somehow manage to and, and find a little bit of clear space to see. But then every once in a while, somebody won't see uh, somebody breaking up ahead of them, and then they'll plow into them, and there can be a big, a huge pileup, obviously. Yep. I can. There's only one race, I guess, ever that um, since I've been watching Formula One. There's only one race that was has been abandoned, and there was one maybe seven, eight years ago in Malaysia that it was just raining too hard that they couldn't even resume it, and mm-hmm. so they they um, they were like a third of the way through the race and they just abandoned it. And in that case, there's a curious thing where you only get half points. So for the rest of the year, all the points tables had people that had. Um, <laughs> 64.5 points or or 13.5 points um because of that but yeah there was a there was oh, i don't remember it was quite a few years ago 10 years ago in brazil like right near the end of the race i think they called it one or two laps early because the rain was so yeah. hard and they lost so many cars i remember tires were going everywhere um Oh, and that's and that's one of the things to really pay attention to is just the attrition of vehicles of cars. Uh, I mean, there is nothing standard on a Formula One car. This is all sort of custom built, pushing the envelope as 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 much as they can do it. So in every race, you know, just twenty twenty two cars in a race, there's usually going to be at least two to four cars that don't finish the race. They may wreck. More than likely, uh, instead of wrecking, they just there's something wrong with the car. And uh, if your name's Alon- uh, Fernando Alonso, yeah. <laughs> that happens to you a lot. Exactly. 
And so they'll be racing, and then all of a sudden people will be passing them, and then you'll hear the the pit the engineering crew say, "All right, let's box," which means goes you know pit. It's like let's bring it in box. And so can you hear the, the crews and stuff? How do you know what they're saying? So the feed for the the race feed is kind of interesting actually. There's there's one it's called the world feed, and there's like basically one person authorized to to show you Formula One. So everybody in the world is seeing the same feed, uh, and they will quite often let you listen in on different radio conversations that are going on. Um, you can hear Lewis Hamilton whining about something or, <laughs> or Sebastian Vettel complaining about something and, <laughs> and whatnot. But, uh, so yeah, so you can hear them come in and trying to decide whether or not they should, they should, uh, box, you know, pit now or wait another lap or two, or they'll complain about their tires or there's a problem and they'll be, you know, change this setting. If you've, one of the things you really need to do is Google do a Google image search for a Formula One steering wheel, and you're going to see like 56 different controls on this on this wheel that they all have to kind of deal with. It's it's quite phenomenal. I guess um, if assuming you haven't fallen asleep right now, dear listener, um, if if any of this interests you at all, please do try to take a look at the uh, U.S. Grand Prix um, this weekend in Austin. It is a spectacular track, and even if there's not a lot of passing, just seeing the cars. Uh, climb this hill and plunge down these S's, uh, going downhill and, uh, seeing the backdrop of the uh, landscape around the track certainly makes for interesting watching, at least for a little bit. Yeah. And one of the, one of the things that I love about Formula One racing is there is a hard time limit. There is a two hour time limit on the race. So no matter how long the race goes, you know, at some point, you know, it'll be no more than two hours. Oh, there are two kind of neat things that, that I want to throw out on, on the Formula One cars. So they have this thing called KERS, which is Kinetic Energy Resuscitation System or something like that. Um, but basically, as they brake, it charges a battery in their car that they can then push the button to get a little, I'll call it a turbo boost, but it gives them a little bit of extra speed uh, whenever they need it. So you know, obviously when they're passing or something, they use that, and then it'll regenerate. I believe it's limited. You know, You can use it once per lap. Then you have to kind of yeah. regenerate it. Um, and so that's kind of neat. And then the other thing they add, and this is really video gamey to my mind, is the, the DRS, or the drag reduction system. So if you're at certain points in the track, they have a measurement time. And if you're within a second behind the guy in front of you, then you get the opportunity to use DRS. And so when you hit one of the DRS zones, which is usually a long straight, you push this button and your back... Back wing element, yeah. Yeah, the back wing element a little slot opens up. Basically, it drops down. And so instead of the downforce pushing you down, it now lets the air completely through and ultimately gives you about a 10-mile-an-hour advantage. So there's there's this huge goal to get right up behind the opponent in front of you so that you can use your DRS, because on the straight, you're suddenly going to be going 10 miles an hour faster than them. Huh. And you would think... It's always your goal to be right up behind your opponent. But one of the things about Formula One is they're so aerodynamic that when you get behind somebody, instead of getting a toe like you would like in NASCAR, here it's actually disrupting your your downforce because you don't have the air that you need to flow over it. and It's hot air to, to add on to that. So it's actually harder on your tires when you're close to somebody. So, you know, if you can't pass them, if you're close to them for two or three laps, you're not going to be close to them much longer because your tires will have degraded as you've been trying to force the car to keep going. Wow. Okay. Well, that's exciting. All right. So looking 
at all this, is there, you know, you talked about a couple of the reasons why Formula One's not all that popular in the United States. Uh, but do you feel that you being here get to participate at all in sort of the F1 culture uh, the same way that you would get to if you've got a favorite football, baseball, basketball, hockey, whatever team? I do because I have a guy named Jonathan Bishop that I can talk <laughs> racing with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean publicly, publicly. I, I suppose uh, there there are probably places where you can go hang out in a bar on Sunday morning at 5 a.m. and watch it just like the – it's it, in, in some ways it's probably a lot like the Premier League soccer crowd, um, although there they have the advantage that they can – most English pubs are going to be the places where those sorts of people gather. I typically haven't actually watched um, – races at any at any live events um other than maybe when the u.s grand prix and things like that get together with a couple other people uh so the culture i guess is mainly more analytical than than passionate i'll watch the race uh when i can which is usually on tape delay sometimes sunday sometimes even spills over till monday uh stay off of social media until i know who won kind of yes, thing i know that um, feeling well <laughs> so 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 the culture is a, is a little bit um it, it it's it's not a it's not a close knit culture I guess I would say uh, but when you run into somebody who shares it with you uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm there um, if I if I can digress I guess there when 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 I was overseas deployed my wife would tape the races and send them to me on DVD and so I'd get them like a week or two afterward and uh, within a month or so of this happening some other people started somehow hearing about it I guess I had just discussed it. And by the time I left, there was like this line of three people that I would watch the race and then I would hand it to somebody else <laughs> and then they would watch it and we'd talk about it and then they'd hand it on to somebody else. And so so it's kind of a, a band of brothers, I guess you could almost say, not to be um, – obviously there are women that like Formula One too, but kind of the 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 few, the proud, I guess, to, to abuse another another slogan would be kind of how maybe it, it would be. Are there any female racers, or is are they all guys? There has never been a formula a female that has started a Formula One race. I believe there have been one or two that have tested cars, uh, but unlike IndyCar, where we've had a lot of women, unlike at least the lower levels of NASCAR and and then now Danica Patrick, uh, where there have been women, there have never been any that started a race in Formula One. Yeah, and it's been said that the the, the former uh, head of the commercial rights enterprise um, was antagonistic about having women in formula one uh we'll see in a in the couple years i think if that changes there's a new group that's in charge of the uh commercial rights for that and they're actually an american company and uh we'll see if they don't uh i wouldn't be surprised if they don't encourage encourage that in some fashion yeah they seem to have taken a lot of (laughs) whatever the previous owner did don't do that (laughs) with a lot of things yeah um and uh and so that'll be pretty good there's basically not people who are here locally cheering on their teams and putting out flags in front of their front yard that kind of stuff to say oh today you're a fan of mercedes or today you're a fan of uh you know ferrari whereas yesterday it was hidden in your in your garage true there 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 is actually this season or last season i guess it started an american team the haas f1 racing team is owned and run by americans they don't have americans driving for them but but they are an American team, and what was interesting about them is they usually a brand new team is not expected to do well at all their first season because there's a lot of learning to do. But they actually got quite a few points, 
far more than people are expecting their first season. And this season, they're not doing too poorly either. So, you know, they're not going to win a championship anytime soon, but they are certainly going to to represent themselves well. So that's pretty cool. I still would be surprised, I guess, that, um, I mean, people wear hats, people wear shirts, and every once in a while you see those. I don't know that anybody's going to have a banner in their yard uh, for a team other than Ferrari, I wouldn't think. Yeah. But uh, you never know. I mean, I'm sure there's people like that, but. I think I like your example of World Cup soccer is perfect. I mean, if you ever see some guy running around in a, you know, Santlander or whatever type jersey from, from World Cup soccer, that's the same likelihood you would see someone in like a Ferrari shirt or something. But it's, they're working hard. I know that, uh, Liberty Media is the people who own F1 now. I know that they're working hard on getting one, possibly two more American tracks on, uh, on the docket in the next couple of years. Yeah, that would be very interesting. There's rumors every couple of years that Long Beach might go back to Formula One from IndyCar. Um, I don't know where else um, offhand. That, Can they uh, not use the it, track for, for both? Or is are the tracks got to be maintained in such a different fashion that they couldn't do both? Or do their seasons just overlap that much? They could perhaps. I guess they'd be worried probably about cannibalizing their audience. with, with You see that a lot in NASCAR where a lot of NASCAR tracks have – um, two races a year or have another track that's near enough to them that depending on how closely scheduled they are, you really end up hurting each other. Um, especially with the new management, I wouldn't rule it out that they would have both a Formula One and an IndyCar race with the old management. Um, that was usually pretty far, and far, few and far between that anything like that would happen. It's It's a lot of fun to watch. It's always interesting to see what happens next, and that's the thing. Well, that's the thing about racing in general. You never know what's going to happen next. Uh, I can tell you, one year I was watching Kimi Raikkonen race, and he was he was on his last lap to win the championship, the whole shebang, and his tire or his whole oh, tire yes. and everything just gave out on on almost the last corner. He ended up not winning the championship. All because his car gave out, and and as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, Ferrari had been really strong at the beginning of the year, and then kind of good at the middle of the year. But these last few races, their cars, which typically are very reliable, have just been dying on them, and so you just never know what to expect. And that's that's a lot of the fun that I have is just never you know seeing what happens next. So who and are then- the big teams? So I guess right now the the top dog team is Mercedes, which um, had a history of, of as other teams, but then was basically bought by Mercedes as as they decided to come back into the sport. Uh, they've been on top the last couple years. Uh, before them, it was Red Bull, which seems kind of odd. Maybe perhaps having a soft drink company sponsor not one but two race teams, but. Um, the, the founder is rich enough that he, he can do that if he wants to. Um, <laughs> Red Bull was dominant for a long time before that. And then before that, it was, um, I guess it was probably a little bit more of a toss up, but we had, uh, Ferrari dominance. There was one year there where the first and only year they raced, Braun GP got one of those things right where they figured out, Hey, the rules allow this. Um, only one other team realized that, and uh, Braun was the only one that capitalized on it and ran away with it. Um, so, so yeah, it comes and goes over over periods of about five years who's dominant, but the last several years it's been Mercedes. We thought, yep. like we said, that Ferrari was going to give them a run this year, but they've uh, really had struggled over the last three races or so. 
And traditionally, back in the day, who were the big teams back then? Well, Ferrari's always a big team. Um, there was a period of time when you just couldn't touch them. When Michael Schumacher was racing yeah. for them, I mean, they were they were just n- nobody's going to get close to them. Uh, Benetton, which again with Schumacher was racing for them, was a pretty big one. Um, McLaren has probably been, other than Ferrari, the well, McLaren and Williams, um, both British teams that had a great deal of success in the 80s and 90s, um, and since then have both faded, um, used to be the big teams. Um, back in the 50s, I guess, I mean, you, when it was more of a free-for-all, you had Alfa Romeo and you had you had several other teams that have kind of come and gone, but uh, and several other British teams that back when... Um, a rich guy and a group of 15 of his friends could build a formula one car and go racing. You had a lot of other teams, but yeah. And the teams themselves change a lot. Like, um, you know, he was mentioning Mercedes and it used to be, and I can never remember all the different teams, but you know, there was Jaguar who was used to be Jordan who used to be something else. I mean, they just kind of change names, but the teams sort of stay the same as well sometimes. Because it's just an amazing and fun sport, and it's just incredibly unpredictable. And, uh, and that's just that's just why I watch it. Are there any movies you think that do a good job at capturing the, you know, F1 spirit or, you know, or hitting the highlights? Uh, is Grand Prix the James Garner movie? Grand Prix is the James Garner movie, uh, which was actually, um, they actually had camera cars um, out on the track during several races back, I think in in '68. And so, if you want to see what it used to be like back then, uh, some of the scenes are are filmed with slower cars that are are sped up or whatever. But there are a lot of scenes on there that were actually taken on location uh, during the 1960s. And so, definitely Grand Prix. Uh, I I was I can't remember the name of the one most recently that was about. Uh, lot of well the one no the one that well Senna as a documentary is great uh but the the one about Nikki Lauda and James Hunt um, oh right yeah I don't remember the title yeah, either so yeah that and that was all filmed after the fact I mean nothing there was archival but uh also does justice to the subject of uh of a time in the 70s when formula 1 was a little little freer and a little bit less money involved Yep. <laughs> it's all for the glory. Indeed. All right. Well, um, then, you know, even though this isn't the game podcast, we should uh, mention games since, you know, Onboard Games is one of the other Inversinia shows. Uh, people are getting together for race day. Maybe they can hit their local game store and grab up a couple of, uh, of indie themed games or, or at least games that mimic that style of racing. What, what ones would you recommend sort of in popular culture? you know, for, for people to play or look at if they're either really into either the feel of the game or who are deeply into the, uh, the technical specs. Well, formula day is obviously the easy go. Um, cause it's easy to pick up You're using a lot of the tracks more than likely. If you look hard enough, you can find a track that they're racing if it's, if they made it. Um, so, uh, that one's always a lot of fun. Uh, I'm a big fan of race formula 90. If you want to get into more of the strategy of, of the game, uh, of the sport, I should say. I never have played Race Formula 90. Um, I'm looking over at my game shelf right now, and, and I have uh, Formula D, Formula Day, and then uh, Grand Prix, I think, um, mm-hmm. captures a lot of the strategy and the the team tactics that are involved um, 
in Formula One, maybe a little bit more than Formula Day does, um, where where in Grand Prix you can actually use one of your cars as the number two to uh, help your lead driver kind of thing. Yeah. yeah well, and there's the Thunder Alley version, except for it's not the NASCAR. What was the other one, Eric? Um, That's Grand Prix. That's oh, Grand Prix. That is Grand Prix? Okay, sorry. Mm-hmm. Then Never mind that. Uh, one of the <laughs> ones that I really like is Downforce, which uh-huh. is a remake of... Um, Speed Circuit Formula. Oh no! Yeah, no, Downforce is yeah the remake of Detroit Cleveland CFR. and Daytona 500 and yeah. yeah. Um, but the you know they look like either uh, I mean it looks like the F1 cars on the pick you know the little doll uh, little miniatures that you have in the game um, and it's it's pretty neat um, and I really like uh, uh, what is it the automobiles from uh, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the trains planes mm-hmm. and automobile series. Is, is one of my favorite very fast-playing race games. So there is a whole bunch of games, and maybe we can do an episode on that uh, uh, over on the inverse, er, over and on board games not too long, far from now. Uh, but I, I, I felt we would be dis- doing a disservice to our listeners if we didn't at least mention them. <laughs> Sounds good. Jonathan, any parting thoughts? Anything we didn't cover that you wanted to make sure we did? Guess not that I can really think of. I, sh- I should come up with something more interesting to say offhand. Um, oh, I, I got a question fine. then. Well, last final question. So you're sitting down to watch the race. What are your snacks and beverages of choice? So I guess it depends. It depends whether I'm catching uh, catching a European race live early in the morning, in which case it's going to be <laughs> coffee to barely stay awake, or whether I'm okay. watching the U.S. Grand Prix. If I'm watching the U.S. Grand Prix, it's probably I'm probably going to. Uh, for some reason, I always tend to drink scotch and when I'm watching Formula One races live in the <laughs> afternoon. And I'm not sure why that is. Um, and well, then usually pizza or something like that. All yeah. the commentators are British or Australian. Uh, that so may be it. It, it fits in of- with the theme of having uh, yeah, Commonwealth uh, commentators involved. It makes me feel more British and more part of the, more part of the tribe, I guess, maybe. There you go. Eric? <laughs> uh, you know, I actually don't usually snack very often i'm trying to get the race in because my dvr will have recorded it so i'll watch it but i don't know that i have chunks of time so i usually watch it in segments so popcorn maybe i don't know so what is the what is the best way to get the the best experience can you go online and find it or is it all you know throttled through um uh through that one one provider you said it's what was the – who has it It's year? NBC Sports Network this year, and you can watch it either – yeah, it's throttled through them. Um, you can either watch it on your DVR or you can – if you have a cable or satellite subscription, you can watch it streaming through the app. Um, that's something that um, I'm hearing rumblings, I guess, uh, may change considerably next year, and it'll be interesting what happens. Uh, like Eric said, it's moving to ESPN, and there's been some remarks that NBC Sports Network made that – tend to suggest that maybe F1 Global is going to have their own streaming or their own network um, over the top that you could get it, that you could get it other than through broadcast and so there's been nothing definite but uh, come next year there may be an entirely new way to watch it other than being tethered through a traditional uh, cable or satellite provider and I have been known in the past if my DVR didn't work right, or for whatever reason I didn't record it. If you look hard enough, you can usually find like the British feeds and in certain places. So, is Mario Andretti the best F1 racer ever? That's uh, a question, but he's very good. <laughs> he's very good. Um, he's the one I know. I'm sorry. You know. Right. <laughs> no, yeah, and I mean he's very good, and as an all-around racer, having won, uh, you know, the 
Daytona 24 Hours, having won the Daytona 500, having won the Formula One World Championship and the Indy 500. He's certainly one of the greatest racers of all time, but certainly if you just look at the records, Michael Schumacher is 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 the most accomplished, although Lewis Hamilton getting is getting closer, which is, is amazing. Um, there are those who would still say that Jim Clark was the greatest, so maybe maybe there's something to be said for that. I'd say probably, if you're looking just at F1, it's not Mario Andretti, um, although he's certainly up there, but you could make a case for for two or three other people. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate you joining me on this. Like I said, it's something I've been trying to get going. Just schedules have been preventing it, but uh, I'm hopefully getting people excited about Formula One uh, and, and certainly the race coming up this weekend. So, Jonathan, uh, any last parting remarks or where you can be found or anything? Uh, you can find me uh, when I do poke my head out on social media. I'm usually Darth Binkley of some form. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, um, I think my my description of of my Twitter feed is it's board games, Star Wars, and racing, and so it's kind of eclectic what I put out there. Uh, but I'm also not going to burden down your feed. So if you feel like following me there, you can do that. If you are a board and when game- you say when you say eclectic, I think you mean awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, yes, that's what I mean. It's certainly an awesome feed. Um, and then if you are on Board Game Geek, if you're part of the board gaming community i'm also darth binkley on there and don where can you be found uh, you can find me staggering through the wilds of the internet as walsfio also here on the inverse genius uh podcaster goodness i'm on, on board games and i i do a lot of the stuff with the games and schools and libraries podcast well excellent and i'm eric dewey you can find me at ericdewey.com and of course on on rpgs and on board games gentlemen thank you very much for joining us you've been listening to inverse genius That's it for this episode of the Inverse Genius Podcast. The Inverse Genius Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 License. Thank you.